I'm Alexander Hefner, your host on The Open Mind. You're listening to our podcast edition of the program. I'm honored to welcome to our podcast today, Nicholas Thompson. Nick Thompson is editor-in-chief of Wired Magazine, and he is the incoming CEO of The Atlantic. Nick, a pleasure to host you today. Oh, I'm delighted to be here. Thank you. Uh, Nick, as you recap on your time at Wired and the evolution or devolution of the tech space, specifically as it relates to misinformation and disinformation. Do you feel as though there have been any advances made so that tech companies can be more accountable for what they are producing, whether it is Alphabet or YouTube within Google or Facebook or Twitter? Is there any accountability you could point to since you started your tenure at Wired? Oh yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think it's been one of the biggest changes in Silicon Valley. So I started my tenure at Wired in the beginning of 2017. Funnily enough, I started the same week as Trump and I'll be leaving the week he leaves. So we'll have an exact mirrored tenure. And during that time period, the tech companies changed a ton, right? So three, maybe four gigantic things changed. One, over that period, much too slowly, I thought, but eventually the tech companies realized that they do have a responsibility and they did start to hire. Right? They hired tens of thousands of people to deal with misinformation, bad content on their platforms. They gradually evolved their algorithms. They did not do it fast enough. They did not do enough, but they certainly did a lot. Second thing is the media paid much more attention to this stuff, right? Nobody was paying attention besides you know, a couple of intrepid reporters. Nobody was paying attention during the 2016 election. Everybody was paying attention during the 2020 election. Now, that doesn't mean the problem was solved. The, sort of the purveyors of misinformation are extremely sophisticated. The algorithms that the companies have you know, are still tuned to sort of amplify misinformation. And then when we talk about accountability, the third big thing happened, which is all these antitrust investigations started. And so, because of the changing politics of the tech industry, you know, the states, federal government, FTC, Department of Justice, Congress, House, European Union, all started really hammering the tech companies. And so in the next couple of years, they're going to be massive antitrust investigations. Now, the antitrust investigations aren't technically about misinformation, but one of the central contentions is them is that a lack of competition, particularly as it, you know, um, involves Google and Facebook has led to lower quality products. And the way that a lower quality product can be measured is by partly the amount of misinformation on it. So there is a lot of pressure coming at the companies uh, to change and improve. Based on the fact that antitrust suits are months and years in the making, both before they're launched and then as the legal process unfolds, um, do you anticipate with a Biden administration that they would be settled within the span of a single four-year term. What, what's your sense of the trajectory of these suits? And we know that there's not just the antitrust suit against Google. There is one now, as you mentioned, against Google conspiring with Facebook uh, that was set in motion by Texas and a number of other states. I mean, certainly they're not going to all be settled within you know, the first term or the only term of the Biden administration, right? So there's the, you know, there's the action against Facebook, right? FTC in the States. There's the action, Department of Justice action against Google. There's this new, you know, Texas-led suit against 
conspiracy between Google and Facebook. There may be many other things in the works. There's continued threat of action from the European Union. There's the European Union against Amazon, for example. So all of this won't be settled in the next four years. Um, you know, one of the one of the things that I'm most interested in, though, is whether the sort of the torrid pace of filings slows down. And that really depends on the politics of the situation, right? So the big tech companies are in the crosshairs because, you know, for the last four years, people in power and people in the media have hated them and have ripped on them, right? There are a million, there are a million antitrust cases that the federal government could file in any given year based on violations. And tech became a target both because they are so rich doing so well and because everybody's gotten so angry at them. So I'm curious about whether the political trajectory of the tech companies changes and whether that affects ultimately the rate at which new antitrust violence come. Now, the ones that exist, they're going to go through a multi-year process, which is strange because by the time they're adjudicated, the tech companies will have evolved and will be producing, you know, you know, laser jetpacks, right? And we'll be, you know, suing them over stuff that they've, you know, is obsolete as of years ago. But, you know, that's just because the judicial system moves slowly and the tech companies move quickly. We'll see how that plays out. There is a movement politically to break up these companies. Um, but the fact that they were able to monopolize in the form that they did, I don't know if you see it this way, but to me, it really is entirely correlated to the fact that the way the FCC operated for television, for radio, uh, never was something reflected in how we ought to consider regulation of, of the internet. And in, in essence, we are where we are with the monopolization of new media and with the lack of accountability and the dis and misinformation crisis because the FCC decided never to evolve. Is that, is that fair? Um, I would... I mean, I think that there are a couple of a couple of other factors that are in, in play here, right? So, you know, at a time of all of the mergers and acquisitions, right? So, Google's acquisition of YouTube, Facebook's acquisition of uh, Instagram and of WhatsApp, right? You know, even Google's acquisition of Android, though Android meant something very different at the time. At the time of those transactions, um, the companies were much smaller, and they were viewed much more benevolently. So I think that is uh, an important difference, right? I think one of the reasons the mergers went through was because of their then size and because of the then perceptions. I also think that up until recently, I don't think that, you know, people who studied tech, understood tech, thought about tech, realized quite the degree to which technology can be a centralizing force that, you know, leads to monopolies. Certainly in the early years of the internet, and I would have kind of made this case probably until... 10 years ago, it seemed like tech was going to lead to more competition, not less, right? Because there's no startup cost, right? I can start a competitor. I can start a competitive search engine. I can start a competitive social network site. I can do it tomorrow and I can do it just with my computer, right? I can't start a competitive toothpaste company because I have to buy a toothpaste production plant, right? It's much easier to do technology one with all. But of course, it turns out that there are other factors that are even stronger that lead to centralization and monopolization, right? economies of sale and network effects. So I think that a misunderstanding of the decentralizing powers of tech, I think a misunderstanding of the costs of the acquisitions, I think that played a major role, but it is also absolutely correct that the government 
you know, whether it's the SEC or whether it's Congress, um, has not done a good job of making the laws keep pace with technology and making sure that it was ready to regulate control and improve the tech sector. What explains why they were not ready or have failed to act over all these years? Well, A, you know, Congress moves slowly, tech moves fast, right? So you do want to be cautious, right? You do want to be careful about putting in a regulation that will become obsolete. The problem is if you don't put in a regulation, then it means that tech is governed by your older regulation, which means it's even more obsolete. So that's one explanation. Second explanation is that the tech companies, though they don't like to say this, were enormously effective lobbyists. I remember spending a lot of time in Washington back in, oh, it would have been, I don't know, 2006, 2007. And like, you know, Sergey Brin, you know, Sergey Brin and Larry Page would show up in Washington and, you know, the congressman would just get down on their hands and knees. There's just this, you know, worship of tech, right? There were more employees from Google who worked in the Obama administration than there were employees from any other company, I believe. So there was a real love of the technology industry. There was a real hesitation to regulate. And, you know, I'm torn on this issue because it is absolutely the case that Congress did not pass optimum regulations for the tech sector. It is also absolutely the case that I think any regulations they would have written would probably have been bad. In some ways, this is the same way I feel about antitrust, right? I feel like these companies are too big. I feel like the power they have is excessive. I think it is bad for American democracy. I think it is bad for the American economy that so much power has consolidated with these companies. However, I also am convinced that our government will screw up antitrust given our dysfunctional government right now. So I don't know what outcome I want, right? Do you want an incompetent government trying to fix a real problem or do you not want that? As we contemplate the most successful resolutions, to to elaborate further on your point, how do you see this ending ideally, if not ideally, in a way that pragmatically makes sense and can be more effective for consumers, for the American economy, to be more equitable and for, you know, an an overall kind of generational pull in the right direction. Yeah. You know, so there are, there are simple actions that I think would be beneficial. I think it would be beneficial if YouTube was spun out from Google. I think it would be beneficial if AWS was separate from Amazon. I think it would be beneficial if WhatsApp and Instagram were split off from Facebook. And actually, you know, those separations are not that hard to do. The government could mandate that and it would probably be useful, right? Once the government gets deeper in the weeds of regulation and starts, you know, mandating these complex systems and rules, you end up creating all kinds of problems. So I suppose my ideal outcome would be structural separation combined with a real threat of government action that makes the companies behave better, right? There's no question that Facebook would never do the kinds of shenanigans they used to do on privacy where they would consistently mislead their users and, you know, increase the amount of data they took without getting user consent, that there's no way Facebook would do that now, or they wouldn't do it as blatantly because everybody's watching. So I like the antitrust oversight because I think it incentivizes good behavior. I do think there are some partial solutions that would be beneficial. What I don't want is, you know, five years from now for, you know, Google to have all kinds of bizarre requirements that make no sense, that don't actually make the company more efficient, that don't actually create more competition, that possibly even entrench its power. 
Like you can imagine this going haywire in all kinds of ways. How much of how the antitrust resolution gets settled will relate to the pandemic and the global economy as it has metamorphosized as the pandemic itself has, you know, metastasized in certain ways that have, have been you know, deeply inequitable to society. But, but do you see that the end game for these social media companies as the end game for our economy, the American economy and global economy at this point, do you think that they relate to how the pandemic, uh, you know, ultimately uh, either resolves or how, you know, how long it takes for it to resolve? That's a good question. Um, a couple of things about that. So number one, the, what the pandemic has done is it has made more stark the power of these companies, right? If you look at the increase in the Dow, right? A huge percentage of it is due to the large tech companies, right? We've all been stuck at home, right? Using Facebook instead of going out and talking to our friends at church. So, so much more of life has shifted online and that has given even more money and concentrated even more power in the hands of these companies. So in the beginning of the pandemic, I think that actually made people more sympathetic to the companies, right? The fact that Facebook was still there, right? We couldn't go to church, but we could go on Facebook was seen as good. Now, as you know, everybody's you know, lost their jobs and lost a lot of money, but Facebook, everybody at Facebook's gotten wealthier, it's going to cause more resentment. So the position of Facebook has you know, gone up in the pandemic and then gone down. And I think the same is mostly true of the other tech companies, right? Amazon may be an exception because it has become such a, you know, such a requirement in our, our lives, right? We need essential goods. Amazon is closer to a necessity than, than Facebook is. Um, so that's, that's point number one. The thing that I think is most, will be most impactful is that the pandemic led to this huge technological boom because, you know, we all started to work from home, right? So we all have to learn how to set up our Wi-Fi mesh networks. We all have to learn how to use Zoom. And in the process, we started creating all of this data, right? So my meetings that used to be held in offices, nothing about them was recorded, but when they're held on Zoom, they're often recorded. That data can be used to train artificial intelligence systems, right? Probably not my meetings, but if I was a sales rep at Wired, presumably the calls get recorded and you learn a lot about you know, where the sales processes break down, you know, much more conversation happens on Slack because it's not happening face-to-face. That all gets recorded, can be used to train machine learning algorithms. So, and then, you know, combined with that, the fact that we're afraid of being near humans, which I think has been a real boost to robotics, right? So then suddenly we have a real boost to robotics, a real boost to things like autonomous cars because we want to be in cars with other humans and a real boost to the data sets and can be used for AI machine learning. So that means that, in the next year, the next two years, we're going to see these massive innovations that have come about because of everybody staying at home. And the innovations and the money and the wealth that comes from that will accumulate in no small part to these giant tech companies, meaning that their wealth and advantages will only accelerate, which could lead to more and more resistance, which could lead to more resentment, which could lead to you know, different government actions. So you know, how the pandemic plays out in the next six months or a year will have some effect on this conversation, but I think that the fact that we've all been at home collecting data, creating data, I think will play a massive role in this in the future. Another impact that I foresee, which is a short proximity, but these weeks of transition 
and whether Donald Trump's exploitation of the social companies to amplify disinformation. And, you know, this is, I think, separate from Russian disinformation in 2016, but the idea of using American born and bred accounts on platforms, Twitter particularly, but also Facebook, where they are using that disinformation as the falsehoods to perpetuate uh, their their argument. And specifically, their argument is to undemocratize the United States. It is to not just undermine, but reverse the result of a free and fair election. And so these days and weeks, both during this transition and ultimately into the Biden administration, I think might be determinative of just how much we need reform on the platforms. Um, decisions ultimately about whether Donald Trump should continue to be on the platform spreading disinformation as an ex-president that has been reported. But I wonder if you agree with that idea that these weeks will also specifically for social media companies um, be influential in how they are perceived for years to come. Yeah, they will be. Um, and for lots of reasons, right? So, you know, one, they did start to take specific action, right? You know, Donald Trump's tweets were labeled by Twitter and to a lesser degree by Facebook in ways that hadn't been before. The companies did scenario plan what would happen if he tried to claim victory in an election he did not win. So they were relatively prepared for that. But I think his actions in the last month, you know, where it's, he hasn't just been lying and spreading disinformation, he's been lying and spreading disinformation and, you know, towards the most destructive aim possible, right? Destroying the best thing this country has going for it, you know, democracy. Um, I think people will remember that his communications platform of choice was Twitter. And so why is that? Well, the problem is that Twitter and to some degree, Facebook, and maybe to the same degree, Facebook and also YouTube, the problem is that the algorithms and the structure are designed in such a way to empower liars, to empower the malevolent, to activate the most base lizard-like parts of our brain. You know, the algorithms and the structures are not set to empower moderate, thoughtful conversation, right? And it's not just Donald Trump, right? I watch, you know, I've been, I can't go too into it, but I've been watching people I know who I know are lying about something, tweeting about it. And they know they're lying, but they also know that Twitter is optimized to help lying um, in that it triggers parts of your brain. You know, it's, it's dispiriting to watch. And it's a pretty fundamental flaw with the nature of the tech platforms that Donald Trump took advantage of to profound effect. It is also encouraging, though, that Joe Biden, who's not particularly good at these platforms, won the election, meaning that, you know, just because we spend a lot of time thinking about the platforms doesn't mean that they are going to, you know, determine our entire political future. Wired did some incredible reporting and continues to do so on the pandemic and the race for the vaccines. Um, in, in one of the pieces on online now, there is a question as to why the United States did not pursue an inactivated vaccine. Um, th there are different kinds of vaccines in the United States, largely it's medical institutions and 
research laboratories focused in on the mRNA approach. Yeah. Um, due to both storage and production limitations and the novelty of that design, uh, it's not clear that American, the American population can be vaccinated fully or even maybe, you know, three quarters or half of the population until the end of next year. Um, what, what, would, what are you looking into now as, as, uh, as we anticipate some of these other vaccines to be deployed, the, the non-mRNA vaccines, and whether or not they might be able to be just as efficacious and ma- mass-produced more quickly? Yeah, I mean, it's a great question, right? The mRNA vaccines have a couple of advantages, right? One, they work very quickly, so they got the data early, so we've been able to you know, start giving injections, right? That's wonderful. Two, because it's an mRNA vaccine, you're not injecting actual virus into people, right? You're just in, injecting instructions on how to make the spike protein and then how to fight it, which means that the risk or some of the risks of vaccine development are lower, right? You know, if you, if you inject a dead virus or a weakened virus, you have, you know, greater possibilities of sort of a negative immune response. So there are big advantages to the mRNA vaccines, but it is also true. And one of the things that we've argued at Wire for a long time is that you actually need a portfolio of vaccines because some may, some may work better in the old, some may work better in the young. Some may be less effective, but have lower side effects. Some might, like the mRNA vaccines are incredibly hard to store, right? They're not going to work in Africa, right? They're only going to work in places with very sophisticated medical infrastructure. So you need a portfolio of vaccines to beat the pandemic. One of the things we're most interested in at Wired is how to most effectively distribute the vaccine. And we wrote a story about that sort of as a math problem. You know, and if you were to, if you were to look at it from a moral perspective and your first moral principle is you should give it to the people who are most in need, you end up giving to a very different group of people than if you just say, what is the lowest number of doses we can give in order to, you know, wipe this virus out, right? So if your goal is to give it to the people who most deserve it, Right. You, some combination of people whose work has sort of moral import during this, right? So frontline workers, most in need, older people, people with comorbidities. There's an interesting debate over whether you give it to older people or people with comorbidities. But if your question is, if you wanted to keep the population safe with the lowest number of vaccine doses, you would actually give it to the people who are most likely to be super spreaders, right? You would give it to um, people who are highly socially connected. And, you know, there was all this opprobrium when... Vaccines are given to people in the Trump White House. And my thought in the back of my head was, well, you know, morally, there's an argument against giving it to them, right? These people have denied COVID-19. But actually, you want to prevent the spread of coronavirus? You give it to the people who don't socially distance, don't wear masks, and are extremely social, right? And maybe, maybe that's the wrong way to look at it. Maybe it's not that maximum efficiency, but maybe there's an approach somewhere in the middle, right? Maybe what you should do, and this is, we wrote a piece about this, maybe the way to do it is to ask everybody, you give me the name of one friend who you'd want to give the vaccine to. And what that does is it very quickly gets the vaccine to people with the most social connections. And if you give it to the people with the most social connections, then you're most likely to stop the transmission. And maybe you can wipe it away in two months, not six, or you know, six months, not 12. So there are all kinds of interesting questions and debates about how the vaccine should be distributed. Nicholas Thompson editor-in-chief of Wired and incoming CEO of The Atlantic. Thank you so much for your insight today. Oh, that was really fun. Thanks so much for having me. Great pleasure to chat. And thank you again. Thank you.